This is the Championship Chat Podcast, your home of news, views and debate from England's second tier. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Championship Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Elliot Jackson, and I'm joined, as always, by George Smith. George, how are you? In a word, depressed. <laughs> how about you, mate? Fed up of football. I don't That's what I am. Friday. Apart from that, I'm all right, mate. How about you? Yeah, not bad, thank you. On today's podcast, we're going to obviously recap the first legs of the Championship semi-finals, which I'm looking forward to. And we're also going to be handing out or announcing our Championship team of the seasons. We've both done separate teams so that, annual, you know, as is an annual tradition, we can poke fun at George for putting Lukas Jukovic up front for the fourth year in a row or something <laughs> equally as wild. Um, so looking forward to doing that. Two really good first sides. I've really enjoyed watching the, the, the two Championship playoff games over the weekend and looking forward to unpicking those with you in the next hour or so. As always, a reminder to make sure you are subscribed to this podcast feed, which you can find on all your usual platforms, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ChampChatPod24. And a massive thank you, as always, to our sponsors, Cards Accepted, for supporting the podcast this season. If you're looking to take card payments with no contract or monthly fees, visit cardsaccepted.co.uk. They provide the discount on the RRP of all sum-up devices, so make sure you go and check them out. And as I say, on today's podcast, we'll be looking back at the Championship First Legs in the playoffs and naming our respective team of the seasons. George will start on Saturday where Sunderland beat Luton Town 2-1 at the Stadium of Light. First leg and it was a fantastic atmosphere on Wearside and a big victory, comeback victory for Tony Mowbray's side beating Luton 2-1 to give themselves a slender one goal advantage heading into the second leg at Kenilworth Road. I did think after about 20 minutes that maybe this was going to be not quite as tight as we'd all anticipated because although Sunderland had started relatively brightly, Luton's goal, it, was, it, was, it, just, it just was a bit... It made me think that Sunderland were a little bit naive maybe. And when you looked in fairness, I mean, we've spoke so often about Sunderland's injuries, but they've lost Dennis Serkin as well. When you have a back four of Patrick Roberts, who's probably one of the most attacking right-wingers you can get, Luko Nine. Uh, Denver Hume and Lyndon Gooch. That is the smallest defence in the history of foot, English football. It was a, well, In reality, it wasn't a back four, was it? It was a back three in possession of uh, O'Nine, Hume and Gooch with O'Nine in the middle and Patrick Roberts basically playing as a right winger and then just going, we're going to play with five. Uh, we're going to play with six forwards. We're going to play with three defending because Jack Clark's the other is the left wing back, if you like. So we're going to try and outscore them. And once Luton had got the lead, my fear was that Sunderland would then have to press onto them and there was potentially space for Adebayo and for Carlton Morris to get in behind on the um, Sunderland break and really hurt them in transition. But it didn't work out like that. But a good goal for Luton nonetheless to, to open it off. Adebayo poaching inside the six-yard box to turn in after uh, after the ball had struck the post and come out. And it was a nicely worked goal for the Hatters. They got themselves in front and having been 14 games unbeaten, George, they were in a really good spot. Yeah, they certainly were. It, they they did come out of the traps quite quickly, I thought. Luton, they set a good tempo to the game. They were bossing possession quite high up the pitch. You know, Alfie Dowerty was getting quite a lot of joy down the flank. And, you know, they looked a threat from the off. And we said, didn't we, last week, Luton have got this terrific away record this season. Sunderland been a little bit jittery at home, even though Sunderland, of course, like Luton, have been terrific away. Their home form has been, you know, it's been... Not questionable, but it's not been quite as good as they would have liked, put it that way. And when Adebayo opened the scoring, you know, just 11 minutes in, I thought, Luton are going to do a Luton here. They're going to, you know, stable the game. They're going to defend the lead. We've seen so many times that they've won games 1-0 this season away from home. But obviously the pendulum changed, didn't it, shortly before half-time with an absolute moment of magic from, I think we can all agree, a magical footballer at this level. What was better, the goal or Tony Mowbray's reaction? I've got, I'm a football man. I've got to go for the goal. Reaction's funny, but the goal was just sublime, wasn't it? It was absolutely stunning from Ahmad Diallo. I mean, this kid has got better and better as the season has gone on. And I've seen a few comments today, actually, from fans of other clubs in, in response to some of the tweets we've put on the podcast page about Ahmad, saying Sunderland are only up there because they've got a £37 million player. They, they, they wouldn't be there without him. It's been a collective effort for Sunderland this year. You know, yeah, they've, they've, that's they've been... 
like you've mentioned there with the back four they lined up with on, on Saturday evening, any team that can do that and obviously win the first leg of a playoff semi-final with that, you know, that back line is a collective effort. It's, it's a remarkable achievement what Tony Mowbray's done. I'll tell you now, whether Sunderland are selling brilliant promotion or not in a couple of weeks' time, what, what a job he's done this season, Tony Mowbray. So obviously Sunderland, you know, they got level, a moment of magic from Ahmad, stunning goal, absolutely marvellous. And then from that moment onwards, they, they were the better team, weren't they? I think they were the, you know, they were the dominant force in the game. And obviously then Trey Hume popped up, unlikely scorer with, with what turned out to be the winner. And I think Sunderland, realistically, they could have got that third goal. They had a couple of chances. They did push for it. And Luton never really fully recovered once Ahmad had brought it level, I didn't think. I didn't think they did enough to test Anthony Patterson from that moment onwards. So for the way Rob Edwards' side started the game, they came out all guns blazing. They got an early goal. They didn't really do much else to trouble Sunderland after that. So for Tony Mowbray, he'll be delighted. It's a winning start. It's only half-time in the tie. Their away record is very good, it must be said. Their away record is very, very good. They're an away team, aren't they, really, Joe? They are. The discrepancy with the home and away form. The, 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 the form on the road has been far better. And as you say, once Sunderland had got themselves level, Luton sort of retreated into their shell a little bit, which they I was did. surprised at, went, given that they were in a 14-game uh, unbeaten run beforehand. I was a little bit surprised Alan Campbell didn't start. Jordan Clark's a very good player, but I thought I was expecting Mpanzu uh, Campbell and uh, uh, Pelly and Ruddock and Panzu. completely <laughs> forgot who the third midfielder was then. Um, I was expecting it to be that trio rather than Clark in for Campbell. I understand that because Clark obviously got great energy to get around the pitch, but yeah. Campbell's a bit of a pressing machine as well. And I thought they just missed that little bit of a link between dif- uh, midfield and attack once Sunderland got level, which probably is what Campbell would offer a little bit more than Clark potentially. But once Sunderland had, had got their tails up, it's quite ironic, really. I've just what I've said about the, the the back three being the smallest back three ever, and yet the winning goal comes from one of them heading the ball into the back of the net. Superb cross from Jack Clark, who really has been in such good form this season. I think again that that his form pays to the you know the silly comments that you just brought up a minute about Ahmad because it's been a collective effort. Patrick Roberts has been fantastic, especially in these closing months. Jack Clark's been really good all season and. Jack Clark was certainly someone whose career was just drifting. Bad move. We've seen it so many times. Patrick Roberts, exactly the same. Break onto the scene. Big move to a, a bigger club. Get misused. Development's not, uh, doesn't isn't managed in the right way. And they end up coasting and, and stuck without a club. And, and Sunderland took a chance on Jack Clark on loan. He had a brilliant time signing permanently. And he's had a great season. And it, it, he was the one that put the ball in. And it's not like... You know, a flicked header, is it? It's going the opposite way. He really has to put some direction. The pace is on the ball, but he's got to really put it back in the opposite corner, Hume. And for only his, I think, second senior goal, really, really well taken. So was the Dennis Serkin header at West Brom recently. It kind of mm. reminded me a little bit of that in the way that, you know, there's still a lot to do when he heads it. He's on the penalty spot. He's not, he's not just a flick into the corner, is it? Really good header. And obviously that puts Sunderland 2 1 up. Yeah, definitely. And you've mentioned there about the quality of that goal and you've gone back to the Dennis Serkin one at um, West Brom a few weeks ago. When you actually think about Sunderland and break it down this season, they've scored some wonderful goals, whether it be oh, you know definitely. individual efforts. Everybody remembers the team goal at Reading right at the start of the campaign. I think it was it the, the second one at West Brom that Serkin also scored. There was some lovely, lovely build-up play in that one. But when, you know, you've, you've obviously looked at the back three there and Trey Hume obviously getting the winner, which is all said and good. Brilliant, brilliant moment for him. When you actually look at that Sunderland team and break it down, and obviously, you know, there's questions about the defence at the minute. Tony Mowbray would love to have the likes of Danny Bart available. Of course he would in this situation, but others have stepped in. They've stepped up out of position. But, you know, when you break that Sunderland squad down player for player and you pick four out, if you picked out Patrick Roberts, Ahmad Diallo, Jack Clark and Alex Pritchard, they are four creating machines at this level. You know, they are four quality players. And I think you'd have to search the championship pretty hard to see if there was a squad with four players of such high quality in attacking scenarios. I think, you know, Tony Mowbray, obviously, he's had to rely on a lot of young players. But the likes of Alex Pritchard, Patrick Roberts, their experience has been so important in all of this. And, you know, you look at the bench as well, the likes of... Uh, Barr and Huggins, who came on on Saturday, 
you know, again, youthful, youthful young individuals. But again, I think one player that we've not mentioned that really caught my eye, certainly in the second half on Saturday, was Equa. I thought he was really good, a really good driving force from midfield. So Another much energy about him. Wouldn't, wouldn't be playing if it got everyone fixed. Exactly. Corey Evans. 20, 21 years of age, brought in from West Ham in, in the January window. Four and a half year contract. Again, signed with a vision to build him forward and take the club forward. And already, you know, he's delivering the goods for Tony Mowbray's team. So Sunderland have gone down the route of youth. A lot of young players. Obviously, Ahmad is the is the you know he's the jewel in the crown, isn't he? He's their main man, and unfortunately, whatever happens, they are going to lose him this summer because Manchester United, by all accounts, have got grand ambitions for him, and, and rightfully so for the way he's performed this year. But there is certainly a really good base for Sunderland to build something, whether they go up or not. And I'll tell you something: they head into that second leg at Luton on on Tuesday night. Luton, of course, by no means out of the tie. We can't write Luton off at all. It's one goal. You know, if Luton get the first goal Tuesday night, we're back where we started and it's game on again. However, Luton have obviously, they've got to come out and attack at Sunderland. They've got to run at them. They've got to get the goal. You know, they're not in a situation where they're needing two or three to get it back level. They only need the one. So it's not as if it's a massive, massive mountain to climb. But of course, there is a, you know, there is a little bit of an uphill struggle. But with the way Sunderland can get forward and get at you away from home on the counter with the pace of the likes of Clark, Ahmad, you know, Equar through the middle, this could play into Sunderland's hands. Luton are going to have to leave gaps. You know, maybe not in the first 20 minutes. They've not got to, you know, literally chuck everything at Sunderland in the first five, 10 minutes. But as the game progresses, if they don't get that goal, they're going to have to commit bodies. That's going to play into Sunderland's hands. And I would think Tony Mowbray... You know, even though he's going to be almost certainly keeping his players grounded, he'll not be getting anybody carried away. I think Sunderland taking a lead into this second leg is huge significance. And I said it last week, I honestly believe Sunderland will get to the final. I said that on last week's episode after the final day. I think they've just carried that momentum through. It's 10 games unbeaten now since they lost to Sheffield United back in March. They've been on a really good upward trajectory. And, you know, Luton, Kenilworth Road... Difficult place to go, Tuesday night, under the lights, everything at stake. But I really fancy Sunderland to, to get the job done and get over the line. I think it'll be another tight game, might even be a draw. But I, I think Sunderland will just do enough to get over the line and get to Wembley. Yeah, I completely agree about the performance. Equa was very good and Sunderland in general, were, were it was a really good they performance. Were. They were. They were strong Luton outfit, a Luton outfit in a lot of confidence. And as you say, 2-1 lead, it's finally poised going into that second leg at Kenilworth Road. Similarly, Coventry City nil, Middlesbrough nil this Sunday lunchtime as we record in the evening. Very rare we get to say this. This was a good nil-nil. It was it was Yeah, tense. it wasn't bad. It was, you know, there was lots of jeopardy. It was a really good contest. Well fought, got feisty at times. You, it was a really good game. And I'm surprised it finished nil-nil, to be honest, based on both, obviously, the set of two teams before kickoff and what we know about both teams and equally from what we saw on the pitch because both teams, it really ebbed and flowed. Both teams had, had good spells in this game where of dominance. Middlesbrough, certainly the best from the off. They started the quickest. Did have the ball in the net through Isaiah Jones, whose pace on that left left shoulder, getting in between Bidwell and Callum Doyle in that, that left-hand channel, was a real nuisance. Lovely ball from Tuber Akpom as well, who dropped deep to thread it through and it was just about the correct decision. He was offside, but they got a lot of joy down that left side with Jones, who has not been a regular starter, not even a regular squad member, in fact, under Michael Carrick since he's come in, which is such a shock in some ways, given how prominent he was for Middlesbrough last season under Chris Wilder. And it was kind of like a toss-up between, you remember Middlesbrough fans weren't bothered about Jed Spence, who'd obviously done so well in Nottingham Forest because they got Isaiah Jones. Well, Carrick's changed things up. He's had Tommy Smith at right back. I think we, we would all say that Isaiah Jones in a four is probably not anyone's ideal situation. He's much better offensively than defensively. Um, but playing on that right side of the attack, generally whoever has played on that right has been asked to hold a little bit more width, whether it's Marcus Force, which it's generally been, whether Aaron Ramsey's played out there at times. And now Jones, I do think he offers them something different, real pace in the final third which they've, they've got all players that are quite quick, but they've got no one that's rapid like Isaiah Jones, maybe Cameron Archer, but I think having that little bit extra pace in the team does give them that, that extra dimension. And they were causing Coventry a lot of problems, which 
got them up the pitch. It, it allowed Hackney and Mowat to control the game because Coventry were afraid to press too high because if they pressed really high onto them, they got space in behind. And then if you don't, if you sit off Middlesbrough, they'll dictate the ball, they'll control possession, and that's what Hackney and Mowat did in that first half. So it was a really strong start by Middlesbrough. They just couldn't get that goal. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I watched this game in full as I was working this lunchtime and I thought first, certainly the first half, Middlesbrough were the better side. They created the better of the chances. Coventry, they didn't really come out of the traps in the way that they probably would have liked at home with a raucous crowd behind them. I think there was a moment, probably about 35 minutes in, something like that, when they won a corner and Brooke Norton and Cuffey turned to, the, turned to the fans behind the goal and really revved them up. And I think that just injected a little bit of life back into them. And, you know, second half, Coventry were a lot better. They were a lot more progressive, weren't they, through the thirds. Gustavo Hamer was pulling the strings a lot better than he was, you know, in the first half. Sunderland, Sunderland Coventry, I should say, were, were sitting quite deep in the first half, weren't they? They were almost retreating. And obviously, Tuber Akpom had that glorious chance, which Ben Wilson pulled off a brilliant save to keep out. But aside from that, Coventry in the, you know, Middlesbrough in the first half didn't really do an awful lot to test Ben Wilson, even though they were the side in the ascendancy. And whatever Mark Robbins said at half time, it certainly worked because Coventry, as I say, were much better after the break. They got on the ball, they were a lot braver with the ball. And Hamer was able to, you know, dictate proceedings in the middle. Jokerez was dropping deeper to try and, you know, link things and spinning behind. And, you know, if it wasn't for a bit of shirt tugging and a bit of tussling and tumbling, he probably would have got away on a couple of occasions. But Overall, I think both managers will be probably frustrated but satisfied at the same time, if that makes any sort of sense. Because I think both of them would have looked at today and thought, first leg, we don't want to lose this, but a nil-nil, we go into that second leg at the Riverside on Wednesday night. You know, everything on the line, everything to play for, as we were. I just feel... And you know, you you know, this season I've developed quite a soft spot for Coventry. I've been really impressed, and you know, it probably dates back to how how sorry I feel for the fans over the years for all what they've had to put up with. I've I've really developed a soft spot for them, and I would like them to get promoted. I just fear that I think Middlesbrough, having gone there and not lost that game, taking it back to the Riverside nil nil, will you know be a little bit more energetic about it. I think they, they they've got the opportunity to be a little bit braver now to attack a little bit more. But, you know, on the flip side, that could work into Coventry's favour because I would argue all the pressure is now on Middlesbrough as the home team. So it's certainly going to be interesting. It's, you know, it's it's as we were, everything's to play for. But I almost feel as though it could turn out to be a missed opportunity for Coventry. Yeah, potentially. They they stayed in it. Yeah, potentially. Certainly, you know, it's not over. But then second half, I did think they put the pressure on and they, they yeah, got they themselves higher up the pitch. They started to press Middlesbrough better. And we know both these teams like to play out from the back, particularly Borough. And there was plenty of opportunities where Giocares, Godden, Hamer, Harmer really got around Hackney Mower, the two centre-halves, and really put pressure on. I thought Harmer had a brilliant second half. I think he showed... Oh, it was superb. I think he showed why he's the one show. of the best, best midfielders in the Championship with that second-half performance. They were the better side. And again, it was the full-back areas where they got a lot of joy. Norton Cuffey getting in between Lenehan and uh, Ryan Giles down that left side and, and, and equally um, down down the left with Bidwell causing problems as well against Smith and uh, Paddy McNair. It's odd as even, as we say, at the half-time whistle. Middlesbrough, you would say you would have to give a slender advantage to given the fact their form is so imperious at the Riverside under Michael Carrick. But Coventry are not a. They're not the same. Last season, they were very reliant on their home form, in particular, weren't they? They were very heavy in their home points gained compared to their away form. This season, it's not been quite the diff, the same. And you would have to say that Coventry are probably the best team in the Championship on the counter attack in transition. So if Middlesbrough really press onto them and don't get the breakthrough, there's going to be a lot of space and a lot of potential for Coventry if they get the passes right to hurt them on the counter-attack. I still think it's on a knife edge. And that, obviously, is the one that backed Coventry before the game. I don't particularly feel less confident about them going there because I think it suits I think it suits both teams. I think it suits Middlesbrough being at home and pushing onto them. And I think it suits Coventry playing on the counter-attack. And I think it just depends which team gets the game plan right. But I think both teams will get to play the way they want to play ultimately. So it's just who can do that better. Can Coventry resist Middlesbrough at their best? Can they keep them out? 
And if they can, can they get the passes right? Can they be clinical? Can they take the chances? Can they get Giocares turning Paddy McNair on the halfway line and spinning in behind? Those are the questions that need to be answered. I don't feel any, you know, the neutral would say, well, we're, we're neutrals, obviously, but people looking on would say Coventry, slight disadvantage now. And, and, and you do have to agree with that. Middlesbrough are fa- will be favourites, but... I don't think it matters. I really still think it's 50-50. 51-49 at a push to Middlesbrough because of the home foot advantage. But Coventry have not got a problem playing away from home. They've certainly not got a problem playing on the counter-attack. No, definitely not. And let's not forget, these two only met at the Riverside, you know, as we record this less than a week ago. It was only last Monday that they played. Obviously, totally different circumstances. You know, the playoffs, the, the pressure cranks up significantly and there's so much more at stake, of course. But... I do see where you're coming from. It could work to the advantage of both teams if you know if that sounds sensible enough. Because for all the reasons you've outlined there, we've seen Middlesbrough. They've had the ability this season, haven't they, to take teams to the cleaners at the Riverside? You know, we saw Norwich get trounced there. We've seen, yeah, all right, Reading got trounced there, but Reading, you know, had a really torrid away record this season. But you look at Coventry's away record on the flip side. They had the seventh best away record in the division this season. Th- respectable thirty points, only conceded twenty-two goals as well away from home. So, you know, they've been strong defensively on the travels this season. And like you said there, if they can get the likes of Hamer feeding Jokerez, spinning Paddy McNair, spinning the centre-halves, you know, there's a chance. There is certainly a chance. It's certainly anybody's game. I don't think you can pick out a clear, clear favourite. But if I, you know, had my head on a block and said, who do you think will progress from this, which is now essentially a one-legged shootout, I think I would be leaning in Middlesbrough's corner. However, that's not to say Coventry can't go and cause them problems because Coventry will go and cause them problems. We know that. It's just going to be very interesting to see how this plays out because, like you said, it's on a knife edge. Both sides you know, have got respective qualities that they can maximise. Middlesbrough's home form, Coventry's away form. Going to be an interesting one this on Wednesday night and uh, really looking forward to seeing how it goes. I'm just relieved that I'm not working late on Wednesday night so I can actually sit down and watch it properly in full. I think it's got the potential to be a real, real classic. And we know damn well, over these two games, Luton, Sunderland, Tuesday, and this one on Wednesday night, there's going to be an unexpected twist of drama somewhere. There has to be. Absolutely, yeah. Two fantastic playoff first legs and both evenly poisons really set up for that second leg coming up next week. This is the Championship Chat Podcast. Right, George, as promised, we're now going to pick our teams of the season. We've both gone for different teams. Tough, tough one in goal. I was really caught between two players. I didn't go with Ben Wilson, who has the most clean sheets in the championship. 20 from a possible 46 games, not including the playoffs. He was He's had a fantastic season. I do think he's been really good. But I've gone with um, Victor Johansson in goal from Rotherham United as my number one. And this was a really tough decision because... You're weighing up someone who's been at right at the top of the league and who, who's got one of the best records clean sheet-wise and had one of the better defences in front of him versus Johansson, who's just been so busy. And I've, I've basically put it down to how many points has Johansson saved Rotherham United? And, and the answer is a hell of a lot, really. If you look at goals prevented, which is a metric for those that don't know, which is basically the goalkeeper equivalent of expected goals where... How many goals would you expect the goalkeeper to have conceded based on the quality of chances the opposition have had versus how many they have? He's got the best goals prevented number in the league. So he's prevented more goals than anyone else in terms of you would have expected them to have scored these opportunities and they've only conceded X amount of goals. He's also got the most saves in the league with 157 is, which works out at a save percentage of 75.6, which again is also the highest in the league. And as I say, when you throw in the, the goals prevented number, which is probably a bit of an equaliser in terms of obviously the better goal, uh, bet the goalkeepers that people generally put in these teams of the season are generally the ones that play for the best teams that have got the best defences in front of them. So this is a bit of an equalising stat. And for me, Johansson has been a huge, huge part of Romney United staying in the Championship. He cleaned up at their season of uh, play of their season awards at the end of the year, and he's been absolutely fantastic for them. Set to sign a new contract, or may have now signed that new contract, and he's going to be a real asset. And I genuinely think he 
has been a very large... I don't want to say he's kept them in the league, but he's certainly been a very large part of that, just as much as Hugel and Ogbené's goals at the top end of the pitch. Well, he's been absolutely colossal at the back, keeping them the chances at bay and, and really, really proving that he's a championship standard goalkeeper and Rotherham will be very lucky to have him again next season. Yeah, definitely. I fully agree with you. Johansson has had a terrific campaign, hasn't he? For all the reasons you've outlined there, he's you know he's been a major part of keeping that team in the league without his contributions they may well have been a hell of a lot closer to the drop than they were in the end he's been you know he's pulled off some terrific saves and you know he's kept Rotherham in a lot of games hasn't he he's won them a lot of games let's be honest and you know he's been superb I think correct me if I'm wrong did he did he earn his first Sweden call up off the back of this you know this season as well certainly at some point in the season yes not sure for certain I thought I thought he did um, so that that in itself proves exactly you know how good he's been. So really well done to him. In terms of my goalkeeper, then I did debate Johansson, but you know I like statistics, you know I like numbers, you know I like clean sheets. So in that sense, I have gone for Ben Wilson uh, of Coventry City, as you mentioned in your little segment. Twenty clean sheets this season, twenty-one now, including the one he's kept to, on Sunday in, in the playoff semi-final against Borough. He didn't even play the first three games this season. He was on the bench, which, you know, proves he wasn't even at the very, very beginning of the season even expected to be Coventry's first choice shot stopper this season under Mark Robbins. Came in after four games and, and it's retained his place ever since. He's he's had a season to remember, hasn't he? You know, anybody that can rack up 20 clean sheets in this division, regardless of the defence or the team you might have got in front of you, you know, it, it takes a hell of a lot of effort. So he's done a remarkable job in, in that sense. And let's not forget the crucial goal that he chipped in with at Blackburn Rovers. He's probably the moment he's never going to stop talking about for the rest of his life. Obviously, there was a little bit of controversy surrounding that. But ultimately, that goal played a key part of Coventry getting into the playoff places. So, for me, he, he deserves the place. Johansson, I have mentioned... In fact, I've actually got a list under my team of honourable mentions who have just missed out on this team. And Victor Johansson was kind of my reserve goalkeeper. So... If it wasn't for Ben Wilson's 20 clean sheets, he probably would have got in there. So I think both of us have gone with, you know, sensible, respectful choices. Can fully understand why you've gone Johansson. And, you know, I think Ben Wilson and Johansson, for me, have been the best two shot stoppers in the, uh, in the championship this season. Yeah, I think they were the two outstanding choices and it was a flip Definitely. of a coin really from me. In terms of my back four, I've got a bit of a wild card at right back, which... It's not cheating, but I, I do have to acknowledge oh, it's, not, it's not where he's played most of his minutes this season, but it's certainly a role he's played consistently and is capable of filling in there. And that's Luko Nine. Now, I'm aware he's played centre-back for most of the season in terms of... But that's that's more because of injuries he's been playing alongside Danny Bart. If Dan Ballard had been fit all season, it would have been a back four of 9 Bart, Ballard, and then whoever you want at left-back. So I appreciate it's a little bit cheating in that way. But in terms of how it would look in-game as well, he would probably play sort of tucked in as a right-sided centre-back because my left-back would absolutely bomb on. So it it works. It works for the team. It's not an unnatural position. But I do equally accept he's played the vast majority of his minutes at centre-back. But he's playing right-back for me because I didn't think there was an outstanding candidate at right-back. Connor Roberts has had a very good season. But he didn't play all of the season. You know, his minutes at the start of the season were were not that consistent. Vitinho was getting the nod ahead of him at some points, and it took a little while for company to warm to him. And the more and more Sunderland's season has gone on, the more heroic Luko Nine has been in terms of his performances. He's a bit of a shit house. He's a bit of a cult hero for some of his antics. I mean, trying to kiss uh, the Norwich City player. I think it was um, Jakobsen. <laughs> well, that was one of the better moments. He's rugby tackled his own teammates, but he's also played here, there, and oh, everywhere. Let's not forget no, this lad was signed don't from forget the piggyback Wonder. rider. Don't forget Sorry? the piggyback rider either. Did yeah, the piggyback, piggyback rider as well on Alex Scott. Alex yeah, Scott, that's Scott, it. Yeah. I knew it was um, Bristol City. I couldn't remember which player. Yeah. And <laughs> let's not forget he was signed as a central midfielder from Wickham Wanderers after they got promoted from League Two. So to make that jump to Sunderland was a big one. And he's then got moved to right back. He's played centre back. He can play anyway. He's just a good footballer. And he's brilliant. 
this Sunderland team has progressed. He's become a real leader in that team. He's really grown into the responsibility role that he's had to grow into because the other players have been absent and because everyone around him is about six because of the injury. So <laughs> he's really, really grown in stature this season. He's been fantastic and he deserved a place in this team. It would have been wrong to not have any representation from Sunderland given how good they've been particularly since the turn of the year. And Luco nine for me, he's played right back plenty of times. He has played right back this season as well, but I do concede most of his minutes have come at centre-back. But that's because of injuries. And with the way this team would shape in-game, it would more be a back three, really, in possession. So I'm having him at right back, and I don't think anyone can really put too much of an argument with that. So Luco nine gets my shout at right back. I'm just going to go back, just before I name my right back, Luco nine, you mentioned there about him being a leader. I don't know if you watched the game or remember seeing or hearing about it. It was when Sunderland beat Middlesbrough 2-0 back in January. Luke O'Neill was, I think he was suspended for that game. Either that or he was injured. And he actually joined Daniel Mann. And I think it was Don Goodman for commentary on Sky. And he came across so well. Such an intelligent young man. You know, really likeable character. Spoke so well, so eloquently. And just came across as an all-round, you know, good individual that you'd want in your team. So I can fully support Luke O'Nine being in there. He's had a fantastic season. My right back, probably a little bit predictable. I did struggle with his position, I must be honest. But in the end, I did settle on Connor Roberts at Burnley. I think he's had a really steady season, played a key part in, in what Vincent Company's team has achieved. You know, he's been pretty sound defensively in a, in a back four that, you know, has been pr- pretty good this season, let's be fair. But he's offered a hell of a lot going forward, hasn't he? He's chipped in a lot more than you probably would have expected him to. He ended the season with four goals and six assists in the league. Five goals, seven assists in all competitions. Scored the goal, of course, that officially clinched promotion for Burnley at Middlesbrough on Good Friday. And I just think he's had a really, really good season. He's been so energetic down that Burnley right-hand side. Bomb forward time and time again. Whether he's had Nathan Teller in front of him, Manuel Benson, you know... Sometimes even Zorori, Scott Twine, whoever it's been, he's linked up so well. And that, that's what he's done throughout the season. And Connor Roberts now, I think the challenge for him is now obviously Vincent Company's, you know, threatening to take Burnley to new heights and the Premier League next season. As much as a step up it's going to be, there's a lot more confidence about Burnley that they're going to be a lot better a Premier League team than they have been in the last few years when they've been in the top flight. Connor Roberts has got the potential to really progress under him as an attacking minded fullback in the Premier League. Obviously, He's going to have to do a lot more defending at that level. But going forward, he's been the best in the business in terms of fullbacks, uh, certainly right sided fullbacks this season. You know, numbers I've reeled off there five goals, seven assists in all competitions. Played 43 league games as well, only missed three out of 46. Really impressive, ever present pretty much. And, you know, just a really solid individual that's done his job week in, week out without too much fuss. So, Connor Roberts at right back for me. I think it's a fair shout. I've got his teammate, Taylor Hardwood-Bellis, at centre-back. He's had a fantastic season. He has been injured for part of it, which made my decision a little tougher in terms of whether I was going to include him. I was It was very close between him and Tom Lockyer. But in the end, I've gone with Hardwood-Bellis because I think the influence he's had on this team has been huge. I know Burnley kept on winning without him. But for me... He's had a really good season. I I had a few question marks over how good he was. He'd had indifferent loan spells. He'd done all right at Blackburn. Stokey was a bit hit and miss. So I didn't really know his true level. He was sort of a middling centre-back at championship level for me. And this needed to be his year where he really kicked on. And I think the fact that the defence did so well without him, and yet as soon as he got fit again, companies stuck him straight back in, probably shows the measure of him. I do think that, Burnley will probably buy him or certainly try and get him on loan again next season in the Premier League, then maybe buy him. I don't see him playing for Manchester City, but he's clearly highly rated given the fact he's in England under under 21 internationally. I think he's the captain, in fact, actually, off the top of my head. I think um, he is, yeah. And he's been a really, really, really consistent performer, hasn't he? I know he had two months out injured. I know Tom Lockie's been really good. But for me, Harwood Bellis... Would Burnley have still gone up without him? Probably. Would they have won the league and got 101 points? That's the debatable bit for me. I can only really remember him having one bad game, which was obviously the Sheffield United game, which everyone had a bad game. 
And for me, he's shown that we, we knew he could play. We knew he was a quality player. You know, you play in the England youth systems. You play for Manchester City. You're clearly a good footballer. But he's shown that resilience, that durability as well during the season. You know, he's only had one injury, which I know took a couple of months, but it was one injury. He's, he's been able to play week in, week out across the, the season. He's played, what, 30-plus games. So for me, he just edged in ahead of Tom Lockyer. And alongside him, I've got Anel Ahmad Hodzic, which I'm sure is no surprise to anyone. He's been the best centre-back in the league for me this season. Especially when you consider Sheffield United took a really big gamble on him in the sense of Sheffield United only made five signings, was it? They certainly only made one permanent signing one permanent in, in, in the summer. Him. And that was Ahmed Hodzic, who was someone they tracked for six months. They tried to bring him in in the January previous, but it didn't work out for various reasons. I think he went on loan to Bordeaux and went back and they paid the money. It was big money as well. You know, it was three and a half million pounds, we're led to believe. Certainly that's what Blackburn had put on the table. And, and I know that the financial offer in terms of transfer fee was the same. Um, it came down to wages. And he's been an absolute, he's, you know, he's worth four times that. If Sheffield United wanted to sell him tomorrow, they'd get 15 million pounds for him easily because he's got everything a modern day defender needs, particularly in a back three, because he has got a lot of creativity. You know, he's a good offensive player as well. A lot of the time he ends up playing sort of right wing back in terms of his positioning where he bombs forward. He's got pace. He's six foot five, but he's quite slender and agile as well. And I really do think he's going to be someone that takes to the Premier League. And if Sheffield United were to get relegated, say, in 12 months' time, I'd be shocked if we see Anel Ahmed Hodzic back in the Championship because I think he's got all the modern attributes that everyone wants in a defender at the top, top, top level. And I think he'll make that step up to the Premier League and he'll look the best of that back line, certainly for me. So for me, he's been the best defender in the Championship. He's chipped in with goals as well as assists. And it was a big gamble to bring him in for such a large, you know, they punted all their money on one player, on a defender. And we've all wondered how Sheffield United were going to evolve from Chris Basham. And he's been such a great servant, been so unique in the way he's played that right centre-back role. How were they going to evolve from that and progress? Well, they they spent their money wisely. He's come in and it's a little bit like Chris Basham, who, without trying to be disrespectful, he's, he's completely blown everyone's expectations out of the water. And for me, he's been probably up there with signing of the season. But certainly when you consider Sheffield United's financial predicament and where they stand, it was a big gamble and it, it really paid off. So those are my two centre-backs, George. Yeah, I can I can fully agree and I can match you on Anel Ahmed Hodzic. I've got him in my back, you know, centre back pairing as well. Being very, very good for all of the reasons you've outlined. Such a wide variety of qualities for a centre half. And like you said, to to fit the Sheffield United mould for a centre back, you've got to be able to do a lot of things, certainly going forward. And, you know, he's been a tailor made fit, if anything, hasn't he? He's slotted straight into that back three with such ease. And, you know, people who listen to this podcast all, all the time. Um, of you know, will have realised since way all the way back in August when I watched him for the very first time. It was a a game against Sunderland at Bramall Lane back in August. That Sheffield United won two one, and Amar Hodzic he scored twice that night, and he was absolutely superb. He stood head and shoulders for me, just about you know, not literally kind of thing, but sort of in his performance, he was just you know a class above everyone else on that pitch that night. I was really impressed by him, and you know, you look at his statistics. For a centre-half, he's been absolutely superb. Six goals, couple of assists. You know, ultimately he was brought in to defend. But as I say, to fit that Sheffield United mould for a centre-half, it's absolutely key. And, you know, like you said there, he's going to take over eventually. You would have thought from Chris Basham, he fills into that role. He can bomb forward. And the goals have been equally important. He's scored key goals in key games at key moments. And a really likable guy, and you can tell from you know the Blades fan base, he's become a an instant cult hero at Bramall Lane. They, they adore him, and I already believe he's got the necessary credentials to step up to the Premier League with with you know a very good amount of confidence in himself. I think he's got that in him. In terms of his centre half partner, I have gone for a Burnley player, but I've gone for Jordan Bayer. I've been really really impressed by him. Obviously, his, uh, his loan move from Borussia Mönchengladbach was made permanent last week. Significant boost for Burnley to get that wrapped up well before the transfer window was even opened. 
I just think he's an absolute Rolls Royce of a defender, to be honest with you. I think he's been absolutely magnificent coming in from a foreign league, as so many of Burnley's summer signings did. He was superb. Him and Harwood Bellis, even though it's obviously not you know not a partnership that's been there all season because of injuries. Bayer only made thirty appearances in total, but when he did play, he he was absolutely superb. So comfortable on the ball, strong in a tackle, and you know when you've got a mentor like Vincent Company, who was arguably one of the best centre halves the Premier League's ever seen, you're going to be a good player. And Jordan Bayer, I mean. What, what a player. And I've mentioned there about his passing capabilities, the second highest pass percentage rate in the league this season, only behind Nathan Wood of Swansea City. I just think he's been an absolute class act, to be honest with you. And, you know, if Burnley, like you mentioned there, Harwood Bellis, if he could return next season, possibly on another loan, and you can guarantee after what's happened this season, Pep Guardiola would trust Vincent Company to take Taylor, Taylor Harwood Bellis again at a higher level. Him and Bayer at the Premier League, you know, at Premier League level for a couple of centre halves, though they're young, Bayer's only twenty-two. That is a really exciting partnership that I think's got a hell of a lot more to give. So, Jordan Bayer and uh, Anil Hamadhodzic, my two centre backs. So, fifty percent of it the same as you, and obviously uh, a Burnley player apiece. Yeah, absolutely. Left back Ryan Giles for me, phenomenal performer this season. 11 assists, which are bonkers numbers for a left-back. And he's kicked on last season. Obviously, had a great half, first half to last season. Went to Blackburn. It didn't work out at all, playing just out of position. Didn't know how to utilise him. But back at Middlesbrough, and it was a really good signing when you thought they were going to set up with that back three under Chris Wilder. Played Jones on the right, Giles on the left. Jewel attacking force. The next step in his development for me is developing that defensive side and proving he can play in the Premier League defensively as a left back in a four maybe and equally even in a five at at the top flight level because in possession he's a quality player he will set up goals he's a dream for a striker in terms of crosses into the box delivery from wide areas but the next step is can he prove himself is he good enough to go and play left wing back for Wolves I think I would give him a go but I think he's got something to prove defensively and, and I mean that as a challenge to him not as a a criticism because I think he's got everything you need as a as a modern day wing back. In many ways, he's a bit like Trent Alexander Arnold. The way that his delivery is just so mm. phenomenal. You know what he can do on the ball. It's can he tighten up a little bit more defensively? He doesn't need to be the best defender in the world, but can he be not a liability defensively in order to play in the Premier League? To you know, to be a top performer in the Premier League to play there because def- offensively he's got it nailed down. He's been brilliant for Middlesbrough. He suits Michael Carrick's game to, to a T. Obviously, he's been playing left-back in a back four in the Championship. And he's done well. There's not, not many times where I've seen him really get caught out. So, he's definitely improving that defensive side. And I'd like to go and let him see him have a crack in the Premier League. Can he do well enough defensively that it's a balance where you get loads out of him offensively? So, Ryan Giles, Ian Matson was the other obvious candidate. But Ryan Giles, pretty easy choice for me. Yeah, can uh, fully agree why you've gone for him. I've gone for a Ryan, but not for Ryan Giles. I've gone for Ryan Manning at Swansea City. Like Ryan Giles, he's been phenomenal going forward. Ten assists this season for him. Five goals. Average more key passes per game than anyone else in the division. I just think he's been absolutely solid and I would argue he's probably you know outside of Swansea probably been one of the most underrated players in the Championship this season. I think he's gone under the radar quite a bit with his statistics. Mentioned there, 10 assists, 5 goals as well, 15 direct goal contributions for a left-back. That That's quite impressive, to be fair to him. And, you know, Swansea are obviously now in a situation where they're trying everything they can to tie him down to a new contract. It, from what I'm reading, from what I'm seeing, it doesn't look as though they're having much joy with that, but they're certainly still trying... And I think the thing with, with Ryan Manning is we, we've seen what a, a very versatile player he is throughout his career when he was at QPR, for instance. But I just think he's taken it up to such a significant level this year. He's been so key to the way Russell Martin's team's played. You know, they had a really good end to the season and he played a key part in that. But you look at his his numbers, and I know it's the Swansea City way, you know, his past, uh, his past success rate was right up there with some of the best in the division. As I said, key passes the most of anybody per game in in the division. 
he was averaging, you know, 2.2 crosses per game. Only three players were getting more than that. So, you know, along with Ryan Giles, been absolutely outstanding. Both both of them, you know, really attack-minded modern-day fullbacks. But I just think, you know, 15 goal contributions was just a little bit too much to be ignored. Giles been superb. Would argue he's certainly got the highest ceiling. He's three years younger than Ryan Manning. There's certainly more potential for him, you would have thought, to go into the Premier League and play. Whereas Manning, you... You never would really think he's going to make that step, but at the championship championship level, one of the best that there is. So I think you know Ryan Giles being absolutely quality, Ryan Manning just the same, equally just as good. Who are your central midfielders? What formation do you play, by the way? I'm going four two three one. Oh, that's perfect. So have I. So who are your central midfielders? Well, my two sitting central midfielders, I, I couldn't leave him out and I, I'll be stunned if you left him out. Got to have Gustavo Hamer in there. He's been, you know, you mentioned him in our analysis of the, the playoff semi-final first leg. He, he, you know, he's been an absolute gem this season, hasn't he? He's been a revelation in that Coventry team. You know, everybody talks about Victor Jokeres in that side, but Gustavo Hamer plays perhaps even more of an important role in the, you know, the whole crafting of the team. He's the driving force in that engine room. You know, predominantly he is a defensive midfielder, but the way he gets forward up the pitch is just absolutely staggering. Nine goals, 10 assists. They're they're ridiculous numbers, really, for a central midfielder at this level. And, you know, if Coventry don't go up, I can't see how they possibly keep hold of him. I think he's tailor-made already for the Premier League. There's so many clubs that could benefit from a driving, energetic midfielder like him creates things so, you know, links it with Jokeris so well. He's just absolutely marvellous and he's a joy to watch. So I think, you know, if you've left him out, I really do think you're a bit of a nutter, but I do think he'll be in your team, Elliot. So you're not a nutter, you'll be okay. But obviously he didn't make the official championship team of the season, did he? Which was absolutely scandalous in my opinion. That that was just, you know, one of the most balmy decisions I've ever seen. So um, Gustavo Hamer is one of the two and joining him, it was a toss-up between two Burnley players, but I've had to go for Josh Cullen. He's been absolutely solid in that midfield this season. A bit like Jordan Bayer, his teammate, really. Rolls-Royce for football, so calm on the ball, makes that Burnley team tick. The signs were there, I thought, from that opening game of the season, you know, way back at the end of July against Huddersfield that Friday night. The way he, you know, dominated the game, dictated possession. You know, he's got so, like I said, so calm on the ball and just... He seems to have got eyes everywhere to control things and pick passes. You know, chipped in with four assists as well, but predominantly it's his role to sit deep and just orchestrate the play and just let things roll. And that's exactly what he's done all season. You can see why Vincent Company, you know, wanted to be reunited with him at Turf Moor after being with him at Anderlecht. And, you know, I think he's another one that's got the potential to step up to the Premier League and prove himself at that level because he's, you know, he's still young. He's still got steps to take. He's still learning. And as we've seen this season, he can dominate a game so, so easily. Almost, you know, with his eyes shut sort of thing. It's just, you know, he doesn't have to break sweat to do it. And I'm really intrigued to see how he gets on in the Premier League. So my two city midfielders there, Gustavo Hamer and uh, Josh Cullen. I've gone for Gustavo Hamer. I don't really have a great deal more to add on what you said, because you summed it up very nicely. He's been the fulcrum of the Coventry midfield. Nine goals, ten assists is a... Fantastic effort and probably what I would say, he has played a slightly different role this season where he's played more advanced because of the injury to Callum O'Hare. He's been the one that's been tasked with leading the press as probably the most advanced of those midfielders, particularly when Jamie Allen's not been in the team. He's been the highest forward and he's adapted to that role. He's got the creative output to produce 19 goal contributions and he's been fantastic. Next to him, I've got Josh Brownhill rather than Josh Cullen. I do think Josh Cullen's been fantastic, but for me, um, Josh Brownhill is was a non-negotiable. He's, he's the heartbeat of this Burnley side. I think he's a Premier League quality player. I think Josh Cullen's a very good player. I'm intrigued to see how he deals playing in the Premier League in terms of less time on the ball, probably quicker players in and around him. Can he deal with that side of the game? Is he a little bit... It was, is he a little bit Ollie Norwood in the sense where Ollie Norwood was always an exceptional championship player, but is he mobile enough to play in the Premier League and be as good as he is in the championship? I've got those question marks. That's not to say the answer's no. He's not an opportunity to prove that, but that's just something that I'm intrigued to see if he can do next season. Has he got that physicality to get around the pitch? 
to match the undoubted quality he's got on the ball. Um, but for me, Josh Brownhill can do a little bit of everything. Yeah, he's probably not got this, quite the same range of passing as Cullen, but he can score goals. He's played as one of the most advanced midfielders. He's played in a two next to Cullen. And I think he's absolutely fantastic. I think he's right up there with the best players in the championship, along with Harmer, um, along with Cullen, along with Ollie Norwood in terms of central midfielders. And he's been absolutely fantastic for Burnley. So those were my two central midfielders. Um, I'll do my three in behind the striker. I have a feeling we might end up with the same front four here. Um, on the right-hand side, I've got Nathan Teller. 17 goals, five assists for Burnley this season. He's been undoubtedly the lone signing of the season. If Southampton choose to keep him and he'll stay at Southampton, they're going to have a real goal asset next season. Someone who is a top, top championship player, is ready to play in the Premier League. If Burnley can persuade Southampton to sell, obviously Southampton have been relegated to the Premier League, uh, from the Premier League to the Championship. So we'll see them next season in action. And what I like about Teller is, He's scored all manner of goals. He's not just a pace merchant who plays on the last shoulder. He's played up front sometimes. Sometimes he's been off the right, sometimes off the left. Probably most of his minutes have come off that right-hand side. But he's been absolutely terrific for Burnley. And he, he's multifaceted. He can, he can link play. He can play short. But, it, you know, the, the, the speed he's got to play behind is such an intelligent player. His appreciation of space and, and his movement inside the 18-yard box when he has played centrally has been key. You know, I think of the hat-trick he scored. I forget who it was against relatively recently. And the first one, the header, the, the way he gets half a yard and arcs his body to head it in. You know, he's a small player. You wouldn't think heading is at the top of his skill set. But he can do a bit of everything. I just think he's a good goal scorer and a good footballer. So Nathan Teller gets my spot on the right-hand side. On the left, I've got Illumin and Jai, who appreciate equally he's not played he sort of played at times in that left channel as a number 10 for Sheffield United, particularly when they went to the 3-4-3, which they played to close out the season with McAtee in the right channel. So I'm playing him there. He's been, for me, the second best player in the Championship this season. If Chu Barakpom had not scored the amount of goals he got, Illumin and Dai would have been my Championship Player of the Year. If Illumin and Dai was slightly younger, he would have been my Young Player of the Year. Certainly in the championship, 14 goals, 10 assists. And I just think he's Sheffield United's best player. I think the way he's grown into the role, we were all concerned about Sheffield United in terms of where the creative output was going to come, who was going to step up after Morgan Gibbs-White left, went back to Wolves and subsequently got sold to Nottingham Forest. Well, that man is Illumin and Jai. And I think Illumin and Jai could be better than Morgan Gibbs-White. I think he could really go and play for a top six Premier League club if his development goes the way I think it could. And if he gets a little bit of luck with injuries and other things, he has been sensational. He's so strong. He's so quick. He's so skillful. And I do think he's relatively system-proof. And I think he will adapt to the Premier League. He's not someone that needs buckets of the ball to get into the game. He can play in moments. And that's what Sheffield United are going to have to do next season in the Premier League. They're going to have to play in transition, in moments, and take the chances. He's still got. He's a bit rough around the edges. He's still got bits to develop. At times, he can be a little bit wasteful in front of goal, but he always creates the chances. And he's, he's been a creator as well of a goal scorer this season, particularly in the first half of the season. I thought he was absolutely sensational. And for me, he's that little bit of stardust that Sheffield United have needed in what's been a pretty well-oiled machine, but he's the stardust that's got them promoted. So for me, Eliman and Jai was an un, you know, was an, he, uh, instant pick to get in this He's team. the luxury player, isn't he? He, he is, he and is everything the, needs one, especially if you're going to be yeah, more regimented like Sheffield He's United. the creative linchpin that, you know... If you need something, you need a spark, he's the one nine times out of ten that's going to provide it. And then finally in that number 10 role is Chubarak Pom. Obvious when I've spoken a minute ago about the amount of goals he scored. 28 of those, two assists. I'm surprised he's not got more assists just because of how creative he's been in that number 10 role. You know, you saw the pass for Isaiah Jones today that I was speaking about earlier. He's got a real eye for a pass and... Who the hell would have thought Chuba Ratpon would have been top scorer in the way Michael Carrick has completely reinvented him as a footballer? You know, it's kind of a bit of a target man, very nomadic, never had a real home. To turn him into this, you know, really intelligent footballer that's dropping off, that's picking passes, that finds space between the lines and, and is genuinely playing like a number 10 rather than a second striker, for example. 
He's been absolutely phenomenal. It's a brilliant story. It's the only this. It's the sort of story the championship cooks up, which is why we love the championship. And in my wildest dreams, I couldn't have imagined what Hugh Bratpun's done this season for Middlesbrough. There are not enough superlatives to describe the story, the way that he has grasped the opportunity given to him by Michael Carrick. And let's see how decisive he could be for Middlesbrough as they try and get themselves in the Premier League. That would be the icing on the cake if he was to score the winning goal at Wembley. And for me, with the sheer amount of goals he scored, for the story behind it as well, he has to be player of the year. He has to be in my team. So Chubarak Pom is my number 10. Yeah, and you know, Chubarak Pom at the start of the season, he was 100-1 to to win the Golden Boot. It's a, it's a fairy tale story, isn't it? In terms of my, you know, sort of attacking midfield three on the right, I'm going to match you up, Nathan Teller. You mentioned Admed Hodzic earlier on as, as arguably your signing of the season. I think Nathan Teller fe- features in the same bracket. Absolutely phenomenal. I've been so impressed by this young man and you really do have to question, of course, hindsight in football is a, a wonderful thing, as we all know. But why did Southampton let him go? He'd have walked straight into that team with the predicament they've found themselves in this season and you know, now they've swapped places with Burnley. Burnley are probably going to be feeling very confident they can get him back on a permanent basis next season if they can, you know, tempt Southampton into a into a permanent sale. So, you mentioned there, 17 goals, five assists in 39 league games. Got a couple of hat-tricks as well. Let's not forget he did chip in with two hat-tricks against Preston North End and, a, and away to Hull City. So, he deserves recognition for that. And he's just been all around brilliant, hasn't he? Let's be honest, 22 direct goal contributions, only 23 years of age and just such an exciting prospect. And, you know, he's played on the right, he's played on the left, he's played as a 10. I think he's even played as a striker once or twice. His all-around game has just been absolutely superb. And I'd be very, very surprised if Burnley don't look to sign him permanently this coming summer. In the in the number 10 position, I'll, I'll go straight across. I've got Chu Brackpom, you know, how, how could you leave him out for all the reasons you've reeled off? Been sensational, hasn't he? It's as simple as that. He's been absolutely astonishing. 28 league goals, 29 goals in all competitions. And I think the most staggering thing for me is about Chu Brackpom. When you, when you look at it, obviously, Chris Wilder at the start of the season didn't even give him a squad number to begin with. He's ended the, se- the regular season, 28 goals in the league and two assists. 30 goal contribution in 38 matches. They are ridiculous numbers. They really are. And, you know, he he deserves great credit, Chuba Akpom, for for producing such a remarkable comeback story. And the way Michael Carrick's got him playing, he's found his best role, and it's just been phenomenal. But the only thing, and Middlesbrough fans might, you know, say, I'm being too critical, too negative, and, you know, being a bit of a bore here. The only thing that concerns you about Chuba Akpom is... Is it going to be a one-season wonder fluke? That's the only thing that concerns me because he's been a little bit of a journeyman in his career. The championship means you. Yeah, maybe. But under Michael Carrick, as you know, Chu Brackbomb said after he, he scored, I think it was in the win against Hull City when he ran over to him that night when he when he broke the record for I think it was the most number of games in consecutive most number of goals in consecutive championship home games. He said something along the lines of the I've been waiting all my life for a manager that believes in me and trusts in me. And Michael Carrick, he seemingly is that man. So, Tuba bomb like you, had to be in there. On the left-hand side, I think this is where I might possibly spring an unexpected surprise on you. I haven't gone for Elamene Jai. He hasn't made my 11, which, you know, sounds pretty bad when you think about what, what it is, what he's done this season. But, you know, I've kind of stuck to player for position and Njai has been more wow, of a centre-forward. He's played sort of left channel. When they've he, gone 3-4-3, three, three, he he's has, but not left number 10. But role. not fully out on the left, like right no, on the left as a natural winger. Ryan Giles bombing down the left, giving width. So, well, on my left-hand side, I've gone, you know, this might be the surprise input for me. I've gone for Jack Clark of Sunderland. Been really, really impressed by him this season. As I mentioned, you know, in our, our review of the of the semi-final first leg on Saturday against Luton, mentioned about Ahmad obviously being, you know, Sunderland's main man. But Jack Clark, his numbers, when you analyse them closely, so, so impressive. You know, nine goals in the league, 11 assists in the league. Got more assists than any other player, I think, in the league. I think joint with Ryan Giles. I think he got the, the joint most in the division this season. He's been absolutely superb. 
as Jack Clark. In fact, no, Jack Clark actually, according to who scored, got 12 assists. The the site I looked at earlier on said 11, so I'm not sure for definite, but who scored said he got 12, which would be, you know, making the, the assist king of the division this season. You know, a company with nine goals as well. He, he played in every single league game, featured in every single one, virtually ever present. I think he made one sub-appearance out of 46, which tells you everything. And, you know, he's only 22. He dropped into League One last season on loan, resurrected his career. Sunderland made it permanent. And I think, you know, Sunderland, when it's come to talking Sunderland this season, obviously almost all of the talk, you know, and I've been just as bad this evening, let's be honest, has been about Ahmad. But there is a growing trend here, isn't there? That Tony Mowbray seems to have a knack of unearthing and freeing up young talent to fulfil the potential we saw it at Blackburn with Harvey Elliott a couple of years ago. We've seen it this year with Ahmad. We've seen it with Jack Clark. You know, we've seen it with Eque in the last few weeks. There's so much to like about Tony Mowbray's methods and attitude towards young players. And I just think Jack Clark, you know, fully deserves a place in this team. For me, he's been outstanding in a youthful team, even though it feels like Jack Clark's been around forever since he, you know, first came on the scene at Leeds under Marcelo Bielsa. I just think he's been, you know, really, really good and arguably their best player this season after Ahmad. You know, nine goals, 11 assists, uh, maybe 12 assists. I'm not sure I need to check that stat out properly. But for me, one of the best in the league. And as a wide left player, I would argue for, you know, as a left midfielder, a natural left midfielder, he's been the best in the league this season for that role. So for me, Jack Clark gets in the team. I don't think Jack Clark doesn't deserve a place in the team and I've really liked Jack Clark and I don't want to be arguing against Jack Clark so I think he's done really well but to not have Illumin and Jai in the team is not okay. I'm not alright with that. Do you yeah, want, let's uh, be honest, do you I, I to... always put one in that's stupid, don't I? Come on. It's not stupid. No, it's not stupid. You know, I like it... Jack Clark. I think he's had a really want... good season. Yeah, but you, you, I always do one decision that's against the grain. Yeah, this you is not about me. Jack Clark. It's about not having Illumin and Jai which I think is weird. Well, right. I apologise. George, do you want to do you want to don our number nine, which I'm assuming yeah. is the same? Well done, Lucas Jukovic. No, I'm just kidding. Victor Jokerez, obviously. How could we possibly leave him out? The man's an absolute monster. Let's be honest, he's enjoyed an absolutely outstanding season. Double figures for goals and assists. He's just been phenomenal, hasn't he? Absolutely phenomenal. The best number nine in the division by an absolute country mile. Luton fans might argue, Carlton Morris, but as an overall player, Victor Jokeres, in my opinion, I like Carlton Morris, he's had a marvellous season. Victor Jokeres, as a footballer overall, is a lot better than Carlton Morris's, and I don't mean that with any disrespect towards Carlton Morris, because, you know, he's had a phenomenal season and he could quite easily have the last laugh and clinch promotion to the Premier League in the, in the next couple of weeks. But Jokeres, for me... It is for Coventry. It's get up or lose him. It's as simple as that. I don't see if they, you know, don't get promotion. I don't see how they retain his services for next season. He's been absolutely phenomenal. You know, forty goals in all competitions since the beginning of last season. The numbers speak for themselves. And as I say, he's all round play. I think back to that goal he scored earlier in the season against Wigan Athletic when he brought the ball down inside his own half and just went charging up the pitch. He is a you know, he's a joy to watch and I couldn't possibly have picked anybody else to spearhead this attack. I will give an honourable mention to Carlton Morris, who's been exceptional this season. But yeah, Victor Jokic has 21 goals, 10 assists. He's been a creator as well as a goal scorer. Been outstanding. For me, he is the most all-round striker, forward player in the Championship. If I could only buy one Championship player in attack and I had to be 100% sure there'd be a success. It would be Victor Gyokerez. I think Illumin Jai's probably got a higher ceiling than Gyokerez. I think he's got the potential to be a better player than Gyokerez could be. But I think Gyokerez would be a success in the Premier League no matter what. And Jai is one of those where I think he could be a top six player, but he could equally prove he's, he's a bit too raw and he's not ready yet. Gyokerez is ready. He will play in the Premier League. Anyone that wants a forward that can play with his back to goal, that can play as a number nine, that can play out wide to the left, that's got pace, that can score all types of goals, that can create as well and assist. He's got the complete package. He's the best forward in the championship for me. And he was a shoe-in for this team. Carlton Morris has been exceptional. Probably the the best permanent signing of the summer, I would argue, if we were giving an award out for that. Um, 
Yeah, um, I think I think you with, could with Ahmed Hodzic as well. To be fair, and I think another one. You know, I, I, as I said, when I was going through my team, I did actually put a list of honourable mentions down, and didn't you know wasn't ever going to get in the team fully because of what others have done in his position. But you've met. I'm bringing it up because you've mentioned it about permanent signings. Another one that's really impressed me is Jan Fleming at Millwall. He's had a really good campaign, and you know, if it wasn't for Tuba Akpom for what he'd done in that number ten role, he, he might have got in there, but. You know, you couldn't leave Akpom out. But Fleming, you know, really good season he's had. And on my list as well, I, I had Harwood Bellis, I had Brownhill, I had Giles and Jai. I even did sneak Joel Perrault on there, which, you know, in comparison to some, the goal, goal ratio has been there, but his overall performance is obviously compared to Jokeres Morris, not quite the same. But he's another one that, you know, he's, he's bashed 20 goals in this season. So quite a difficult one to pick in certain certain aspects this season. But... Probably a quite a quite a few positions did pick themselves quite comfortably. Our teams of the season were more different than I thought, which is a, a positive. I did wonder if we were going to have sort of nine, ten of the same team, but we did have some variation in there, which I like. But some obvious picks that were were undeniable um, to anyone picking this team whatsoever. Let us know who makes your championship team of the season. Tweet us at ChampChatPod24. These always generate good discussion, so let us know who makes your team. And that rounds off this week's podcast. We'll have... Sorry? Always abuse for me. You will have some Sheffield United fans directed in your direction. Um, for oh, I will. When they ask. Inevitably, someone will, will comment on our Twitter page. Does Illumin and Jai play basketball? Etc. Etc. Pick whichever yeah. sport you want. Um, but yeah. that rounds off this week's podcast. We will have another pod shortly um reflecting on the second legs of the championship and previewing that big final and we'll also have a reflection coming up before the summer on our one to 24 predictions earlier in the season before we take a little oh, that'll bit be of a break and that'll be a great laugh that will kicks in <laughs> thank you for listening to this week's podcast have a great week and we'll catch you again very soon this is the championship chat podcast your home of news views and debate from england's second tier